1: Hello! Welcome back to another Archaeogastronomical adventure. This is the Delicious Legacy podcast and I'm your host, Thomas Dinas. And I'm very excited about this episode, you know, because we are going to a period of time that is widely misunderstood. We are going to try and cover... 1,000 years of history in a whole continent. And yes, we're talking about the medieval period and we're talking about the continent of Europe. Sure, it's not as vast as Asia or Africa or perhaps if we concentrate on just the Western Europe, we miss a lot of other areas, a lot of other interesting and intriguing history with the Byzantine Empire and the Middle East and so on. I'm really excited kicking off this uh, series of episodes about medieval food and um, I will try and be as broad as possible, but also as specific as possible about the different cuisines, the different cultures and any interesting and unknown elements from the different um, areas in uh, the Middle Ages, in medieval Europe. So by starting with the basic stuff, like when was it? we're talking about the medieval period we're talking about a period that lasted roughly a thousand years we're talking about a time scale between the 5th century and the 15th century AD 1,000 years of eating really it's too many things to explore so I will try and be as um, specific as possible and as detailed as possible so wish me luck and come and join me into another archaeogastronomical adventure And this is really exciting in a way because we're going to be exploring the cuisine of people before the arrival of new foods from the new world. So there's nothing about tomatoes, about corn, about peppers and chilies and turkeys and um, potatoes, uh, squashes. None of these things existed in Europe back then. So we are before that great uh, convergence of worlds. And this is really exciting because there's so many amazing foods that emerge with the connections of the trade between Africa, Asia, Middle East, Europe, Byzantine Empire, Northern Europe, uh, Eastern Europe and um, everything in between. We'll see how these things bring together a new exciting culture. So before the arrival of new foods, the new world there was still a remarkable variety of foodstuffs available to european citizens certainly not for everyone not all the time but many had access to both indigenous varieties of fruit and veg and meat and crucially also more exotic let's say let's use this word exotic which i despise in many occasions so many had access to this exotic from asia and africa to an extent uh, ingredients and all these ingredients Of course, they were coming to Europe via the Arab merchants and their vast trade network. Spices and exotic fruits were in high demand. High demand from the ruling classes, of course, of Europe across the continent. And yeah, they were coming in and they were flowing and they were influencing and changing constantly the way people cooked and what they ate and how they perceived um, their food. I think it's safe to say that... um, The start of um, the medieval period is around the reign of Justinian I, the emperor of uh, the Eastern Roman Empire, or what we know it now as uh, the Byzantine Empire. When Leo I occupied the imperial throne of Byzantium, three young farmers of Illyrian origin, Simarchus, Detyvistus and Justin, who came from Vederiana, determined to join the army. They covered the whole distance to Byzantium on foot, carrying on their own soldiers cloaks, in which, on their arrival, they had nothing but twice-baked bread that they had packed at home. This young farm boy, Justin, would eventually become the emperor, Justin I, father of the conqueror and lawgiver, Justinian. And I think it's safe to say that uh, the medieval time finishes around the time of the fall of Constantinople in 1453, and, like, perhaps with um, Columbus' trip to the New World, to Americas. So, in those years, it's roughly somewhere between 1453 and 1492, is where and when um, we can define the medieval period as finishing, so we do roughly have about a thousand years of history to cover. So yeah, when we're talking about European uh, medieval cuisine, we do have a lot more to discover and to think about. The Byzantine Empire, on its core and on its, in its essence, is or was the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire is quintessentially Christian and European. But despite those facts, the Byzantine Empire extended mainly to the Balkans, Middle East, what is now Turkey, Uh, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, and perhaps at the greatest extent under Justinian, also Italy and Spain and Morocco, Sicily. So that means that, yes, we do have a very interesting mixture of different um, elements, but also quite vast distances to cover and everybody obviously ate what was available, local or not, and whatever was uh, part of the um, Christian diet, part of the uh, Empire's um, trade network. So I think um, this episode can actually be very interesting to find out so many, many, many different local unique ingredients and uh, cuisines, as well as obviously We're traveling through a thousand years of uh, time here, so we're bound to have changes to the diet, not only due to how cultures change and evolve and people move around, but also climate and also new discoveries and evolution and technology and so on and so on. What is challenging exploring the cuisine of uh, medieval Europe over a period of a thousand years is uh, how little has survived from that period and that little that survived is all nearly from the end of uh, the medieval period so we're talking about the tail end around the 13th 14th and 15th centuries that's where we have uh, the majority of cookbooks and recipes surviving from this late medieval collections of uh, cookbooks includes Le ménagère de Paris which is a French uh, book obviously which contrasts late in English as the Parisian Household Book, which is uh, written um, around 1393, which is supposed to be on a woman's proper behaviour in marriage and running a household. So it contains recipes and all other advices and tips. Another one is uh, Le Viandier, which is um, a recipe collection generally credited to Guillaume Tirel, which is uh, one of the earliest versions written about... 1300 and um, yeah this is one of the best known recipe collections from the middle ages alongside with the latin language liber de coquina uh, which again early 14th century and contains recipes from france and italy and of course the english the form of curry or roughly around 1390 which we explored in an episode with dr christopher monk in uh, episode 28 season one, back in July 2021. And that tells us little or nothing about the way food was prepared in the early Middle Ages. And on top of that, these cookbooks were compiled and copied by members of, how else can we describe it, but an educated elite, uh, which was the clergy, the nobility, uh, the rich bourgeoisie. And generally, the food of the lower classes is not represented representative. These writings, these texts are silent on that subject, unfortunately. And of course, what made the the vast majority of uh, the medieval society was (laughs) the lower classes, the, (laughs) the farmers and the peasants and all the people who worked in the fields. The only good thing is that these recipes give us some idea of the kinds of dishes that were prepared and eaten in general And then, yeah, the names they were given, the ingredients that they went to them. So that kind of gives us, obviously, information about what was available at the time. But, as usual, with most of the ancient cookbooks and recipes, often the crucial pieces of information that we we need uh, from our perspective, from our modern uh, cooking uh, techniques and instructions, is the quantities, the measurements, and the exact lists of seasonings Uh, These are all missing uh, from those books. So it's kind of a frustrating thing. Obviously, still, even though we're not in ancient Greece and Rome, still we have the same problems uh, in medieval Europe, that we don't have a very detailed account of what a recipe consists of. And I think that's prevalent throughout history because these cookbooks were instructions for other cooks who knew how to cook and who knew what they want to cook for their masters generally. And hence, that's that's why for us, who we are interested in in cooking these ancient techniques and these ancient dishes, this gives us a bit of a challenge when we're trying to recreate uh, the ancient dishes. So often when we're trying to compile a more wholesome and um, complete picture of what the food culture back then was we consult and i say we i mean the historians and all the people who are involved studying the past they consult a variety of sources that uh, provide further pieces to this puzzle of the medieval food so it's not only cookbooks but also we find valuable information at literary texts such as legends surrounding you know the king Arthur. and The Knights of the Round Table, for example, or religious texts outlining dietary restrictions or elaborating and philosophizing about the saints and the gluttony and so on. We also find clues on historical uh, records, like chronicles, household diaries, hospital or municipal accounts, but of course also legal texts that relate to food in some way or another. on top and quite importantly, on medical texts, on nutrition, we find a lot of information about food and recipes and what people ate or what should be eating, really. Some of these uh, texts and literary sources that we have come from people like Alexander Neckham, who was um, an English uh, poet, theologian and writer. And he was an abbot at Cyrus Hester Abbey from uh, about 1213. So right slabang bang in the middle of um, our Middle Ages until his death. So in one of his uh, writings and books, which was um, concerned with uh, natural history, Nekam uh, began uh, describing the kitchen, in a sense, describing its large preparation table, the tripods, pestles and mortars, frying pans, eel spears, fish baskets and leather vessels for wine. Cooks hung their cloths on poles to keep them from the mice and the head cook was so elevated that he had his own apartment for preparing condiments. There were separate sinks for viscera and offal, ladles for basting, hatchets, hooks and sharpened knives, saucepans and cauldrons, green irons and kettles for cooking lamprey a fish which was venerated by medieval gourmets. And Neckam takes us right into the warmth of a high-class kitchen in the 12th century, but he gives us more than a list of equipment, recommending cumin sauce for stewed ham, mentioning three kinds of sausage, andolus, salsistres and putingis, and giving fine directions for roasting pork with a little salt to make its rind really crunchy. In a separate work on horticulture called the Naturis Rerum, he catalogued an expanding range of tasty culinary herbs, including parsley, fennel, coriander, sage, savoury, hyssop, mint, sorrel, thyme, saffron, lettuce, garden cress and the strong-smelling uh, roux, which uh, also used to treat snakebite and poor eyesight. Another valuable resource for uh, medieval food and um, generally eating and kitchen habits, is uh, Piers Plowman, which is um, a poem, a Middle English allegorical narrative poem, written by William Langland. There we find some reference that the poor ate peas pudding, baked apples, ripe cherries, or the cooked shells of peas known as peacods. And in a a drought, uh, Piers lamented, all I've got is a couple of fresh cheeses and a little curds and cream. An oat cake and two loaves of beans and bran. I haven't a scrap of bacon. And I haven't a cook to fry you steak and onions. But I have got some parsley and shallots and plenty of cabbages. And a cow and a calf. And with these few things we must live until Lamas, which is the 1st of August, when I hope to reap a harvest in my fields. And of course the other... Way to complete the puzzle of medieval food and provides us some valuable data is obviously archaeology, which uh, provides especially the type and the quantity of food eaten in a certain area. Provides us some more exact details of what types of plants and um, animals were eaten. The other thing is uh, that we know a good deal about uh, the wars of of all the emperors and the empires across the continent. And we know too much about sectarian controversies and religion and so on. But we know rather little about what these emperors liked individually in everyday life. One of the scholars uh, from the Byzantine Empire, Michael Psilos, which uh, he left us a dry and observant memoir called uh, Chronographia, uh, he gives us some uh, information about one of the emperors under whom he lived. So Constantine VIII was very big in stature, over 8 feet tall and fairly strong physique. His stomach was strong too and his constitution was well able to deal with whatever he ate. He was a highly skilled mixer of sauces, seasoning his dishes with colors and flavors so as to arouse the appetite of all types of eaters. He was ruled by food and sex. His self-indulgence had brought on a disease of the joints. Both feet, in particular, were so bad that he could not walk and ever since he became an emperor, no one who knew him to choose to go about on foot. Firm in his saddle, he would ride everywhere. So as far as we know, Constantine Eighth was uh, the only amateur chef in the whole list of Byzantine emperors over a thousand years. But yeah, there are tantalizing evidence across the writings of uh, the European chronicles about um, kings and emperors and uh, the aristocracy and their uh, food-related habits, as we will see here in this episode. I think I could pinpoint uh, the start of the Middle Ages, at the year 541 AD, when uh, the Byzantine world, is in the grips of the Great uh, Plague of Justinian, which actually brings uh, farming to a massive halt in Europe and causes famine in Europe, in Middle East and in uh, Asia in generally, and uh, lasts about 70 years. At the same time, a new lightweight plough equipped uh, with a coulter, which is a knife blade and pulled by eight oxen is invented by the Slavs And this new agricultural invention leads to population explosion in the northern and western Europe. So while we have this famine in southern Europe and the Middle East, we have a population explosion a few years later and for about 100 years lasting in northern and western Europe. I'll be back after this short break. Hello there, sorry to interrupt. My name's Dr Neil Buttery
0: and I'm host of the British Food History Podcast, a podcast that you, as a fan of the delicious legacy, might be interested in. I explore British food and its history in all its glory with interviews with special guests, recipes, reenactments and tracking down forgotten recipes and hyper-regional specialities. Previous topics include medieval eels, 18th century dining, curry, London street food sellers, breakfast and the good old Yorkshire pudding. Search for the British Food History Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the delicious legacy. Cheers. Today's head. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince has the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery, soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more.
1: UK's leading Greek delicatessen, supplier and distributor of premium Greek produce. Whatever you need, Malbian Greek has you covered. You can shop online and have the divine and delicious goods delivered to your doorstep across the UK, or you can visit the shop at art 17 Apollo Business Park, Lucy Way, SC16, 4ET, Bermondsey, London. Malbian Greek, the one-stop shop for your Greek fix. If we start uh, with more generic stuff, so we'll see that um, back uh, in Middle Ages, in um, the 5th, 6th, 7th century in Europe, barley, rye, millet, oats were the staples of the northern farmers and peasants. Lentils, chickpeas and peas were cultivated and widely consumed across the continent. Rice was, again, it was very rare still. It was... um, rare and expensive. Only as a result of the Arab expansion into Europe, rice came from North Africa to Spain and Sicily in the Middle Ages. That's where the places where the Arabs um, had the biggest influence with their empire extending all the way from Persia and uh, the Middle East through North Africa, Egypt, what we call today Libya, um, and Algeria and Morocco and Spain... And so, yeah, with uh, the Arab influence, rice was coming slowly into the European culinary eye. In the 13th century, it was traded as a luxury foodstuff across Europe. And in the 15th century, it was grown on a large scale, finally, in Northern Italy. So if we think the Arab conquest and the Arab expansion started around the 7th century AD, so we're talking about it took about seven, 800 years for the rice to finally become a staple and grown in uh, Europe. The four types of rice sold in Central Europe and named after the place of origin were Ostilia, mantua, verona and milan rice. In uh, the late medieval cookbooks, rice plays a dominant role as we will see later on on this episode. Garlic, leeks, onions, cabbage, turnips, asparagus, cucumbers, radishes, spinach and carrots, too, were all part of uh, the diet of medieval people. To a bigger or lesser extent, across different countries and and geographical regions, herbs were important as well, both as medicinal, as also a flavouring agent to food. And herbs were cheap and easy to grow, uh, such as mint, parsley, sage, rosemary, caraway, fennel and dill, they were often eaten by all people. And mustard was also very popular as a cheap and abundant spice. Something peppery to give the everyday food a bit of an oomph, you know, to change the monotonous and uh, often boring cuisine of um, the peasants. The most basic form of cooking food was on an open fire. Even eggs in their shells for instance, could be easily cooked this way. And when their contents were broken directly on the embers, such eggs were called lost eggs, oeufs perdus in French. Before eating these eggs, it was advisable to clean off the ash. Most members of the lower classes, when they had a roof over their heads, lived in one-room dwellings with a fireplace in the centre that served as a source of heat, a source of light and a cooking facility. Stones were used to contain the fire. If the walls of the building were not of wood but of stone, the fireplace was often moved away from the center and against one of the walls. It's important to understand a little bit about uh, the basic uh, living standards of the time in Europe and how people actually lived their everyday lives so we can see how they cooked and what they cooked and how they ate. A basic piece of equipment for any medieval cook was the cast-iron cauldron that either had legs already molded into its body or was placed on a ring, usually with three legs, and it was set in the coals. Alternatively, the cauldron could be hung from an adjustable hook attached to a beam or to a chimney crane, an iron arm swinging horizontally. This had the advantage that the heat could be better regulated and would avoid burning the food. When earthenware pots were used by the housewife, she would either place them in the hot ashes beside the fire, or put them on a hot stone in the coals. And since boiling and stewing were the most economical ways of preparing food, because no valuable juices were lost, and because only the most basic of cooking facilities were needed, the typical dish of the lower classes was the pottage or stew. In fact, from the French word for cauldron, saugier, comes the modern English word chowder. The richer the household in the Middle Ages, the better equipped its kitchen was. The more refined its cuisine, and the greater the likelihood that the food was not prepared by a lone housewife, but by one or more professional cooks with an army of helpers. Monasteries, manor houses, castles, and the house of a wealthy bourgeoisie or the places where cooks exercised the craft, if they did not run their own business. Like many other professions of the time, cooks were organised in guilds. To become a master cook in Paris, for example, one had to first work as an apprentice for two years, and then as a journeyman for another master. Having attained the title of a master, a cook had several options then. He could open his own cookshop, work for another master, or seek employment in a wealthy household. The relatively low-pay cooks received, compared to members of other professions, suggest that their status in society was not particularly high. There were exceptions, handsomely rewarded for their services, such as the famous Tagivin, chief cook of the King of France, not only rewarded for his services, was even given a coat of arms. Judging from the literary sources, however, It would appear that, on the whole, cooks suffered from an image problem in the Middle Ages, a time in which the spirit was held in much higher esteem than the body, at least by the so-called educated elite. Hence, the work of a scribe copying a religious text was regarded as vastly superior to that of a cook, who catered to the needs of the flesh. Aside from the perceived lack of education, cooks and their staff were often looked down upon because the job was a messy and smelly one that made them reek of kitchen odors. Furthermore, they were accused of drinking on the job, of being hot-tempered and crotchety, and of possessing a rough sense of humour. Which, (laughs) they're all things that you can accuse modern chefs uh, as well, if one wants to be a bit um, facetious. But in their defence, it must be pointed out that the job was not always easy, obviously, (laughs) and it's still isn't, for anyone who worked in the kitchens, they were besieged as they were by boarders, nibblers, and tasters who were not only of the humankind, but (laughs) back in medieval times included dogs, cats, foxes, rats, mice, and flies, to name but a few. A little wonder then that cooks were known to use the trademark ladle with which they were usually depicted, not just to taste the food, but also to discipline and chase away the various interlopers. Which uh, point brings me definitely to an interesting question. How did the cooks themselves view their profession? Do we have any written evidence or any other kind of evidence about that? What we have suggests that at least when it came to aristocratic cooks they regarded their work as much more than just a a craft. Master Chicard. Chief cook of the Duke of Savoy, for instance, saw himself as an artist and a scientist. Entrusted with the health and well being of their employers and families, not to speak of the many high ranking guests that they had to feed in the course of the year, cooks worked closely with the court physicians, and even if cooks could not read Latin, they must have had some basic knowledge of the medieval theory of nutrition. And this is something we talked extensively in the past the humoral theory, and uh, all that. Food was regarded as the primary means to keep the four humors in the human body in balance and to rein in any excessive humor with a diet that was appropriate for the particular humoral imbalance and that was dependent on the individual and also if you were male, female, if you were working in the fields, if you were a child, if you were an aristocratic person, and so on. In addition to this scientific knowledge and mastery of the various cooking methods, a good cook was also expected to possess artistic talent. With the appearance playing such an important role in the medieval kitchen and dining experience, it was up to the cook to devise dishes in even more intricate shapes and colours and to entertain the guests with illusion food that would make any modern magician proud. But even if uh, this invention of uh, memorable dishes was something like a crowning glory for a chef and it was immortalized in books and so on and so on. The truth is that most of the work of the cook and his kitchen staff that was performed day in and day out it was rather unglamorous and tedious and tiring. And being in charge of supplies from firewood to foodstuffs and kitchenware cooks usually had to report their expenses daily to their superiors. The kitchen clerks or the steward for example, we have the house of the Duke of Burgundy, uh, which employed three cooks, of whom one was the chief cook or master. Taking orders from the cooks were specialists and their helpers, among them a roaster, a potager and a larder, who was in charge of the larder where the food was stored. Given the real and perceived danger of poison uh, in medieval times of the upper classes and the upper class households, the office of the cook was one of trust. In the absence of the cook, the cook was to be replaced by a roaster. And then the potager was next in line. Other specialists at court, who did not perform the tasks directly in the kitchen, but whose work was nevertheless essential for the preparation of a meal, were the saucers and their helpers, who supplied the standard sauces and made sure that enough salt, vinegar and juice the sour juice of unripe grapes, was always in store. And then you had the fruiterers. Whose responsibilities extended to candles and tapers as well, working either from within or outside of noble households were the bakers, pastry cooks, waferers and confectioners, butchers and poulterers. The general rule in wealthy households was, however, to process foodstuffs as much as possible in house, since buying dishes prepared from outside the castle walls carried the danger of serving food made from inferior, tainted or outright poisonous ingredients. To make the most of the fire for cooking took a lot of skill, and medieval cooks were true masters in exploiting the heat for a variety of uh, tasks simultaneously. Anyone who cooked uh, on charcoal on a barbecue would understand that uh, challenge, Uh, let alone uh, in medieval times cooking on uh, firewood inside and massive fires and so on. So big cooking pots were hung above the fire on adjustable hooks that, when attached to swinging chimney cranes, allowed for heat regulation by moving the pot vertically and horizontally to or from the fire. The bearing logs were placed in andirons under the pot and, if necessary, could be removed to reduce the heat. Sometimes small metal baskets were attached to the upright posts of andirons. These filled with hot coals, they were an extra heat source for a pan or a pot placed over them. Bigger pots and cauldrons would be placed on tripods or the somewhat lower trivets set over or in the coals. To make fritters, pots with cooking oil were placed directly in the coals. For roasting meat and fish or for toasting bread, spits and grills were used that they were either made of wrought iron or of wood. Varying in length and thickness depending on the size and the weight of the food to be roasted, ranging from a small bear to a whole ox, spits were placed either right over the fire or to the side, often resting on the antirons on a similar contraption and turned by one of the scallions. So as not to be directly exposed to the heat of the fire, these spit turners would frequently do their work behind metal shields to catch the juices and basting liquids dripping from the roasts, a special pan called lechfait in French was put under the spit. This pan was also used for gently heating delicate foods. Frying pans came in various depths and sizes and looked quite similar to the frying pans we still use today. When frying food, cooks held them directly over the fire or placed them on a tripod above the fire. When we come to talk and think about medieval food a lot of it has to do with uh, pies and pastry and the medieval pie crust was an interesting and perhaps a little bit odd uh, culinary invention in a way to make pastry strong enough to withstand the filling hot water was used to turn the gluten in the rye flour into an elastic gray putty that could stay upright on its own so this is the start of making inedible pie crusts we also had edible pie crusts as uh, we'll see in a little bit. So the pastry, or paste, as it was known, was raised up by hand, either by using a wooden plug, or by punching a fist into a bowl of dough, and pulling up the sides rather like a crude pot, except that it was not crude, it was rather skillful and above all practical. Once the pies with their contents were cooked, the gravy would be drained out and clarified butter poured in through a pipe or funnel in the top. This sealed the meat from the air and kept it fresh in the larder for weeks or perhaps in some cases even months. It might then be reheated and just before it was served a fresh hot gravy or a sweet spiced and sometimes ale spiked coddle of eggs could be added. At the table the crust would be broken open and the contents spooned out as the steam rose. The tough inedible pastry was either discarded or kept in the kitchen as a thickener for potages. The largest of the ovens in the pastry house at Hampton Court was more than 12 feet wide. Raised pies were important, highly decorated centerpieces at feasts, as well as practical homely fare. They were in a sense containers filled with a mixture of various meats, fruits and spices. Curiously, There are no real recipes for early pastry. Perhaps like bread it was uh, extremely widely understood and practiced and that the process was taken for granted. The only instruction in uh, Richard II's form of curry cookbook is that cooks should blow hard into their pastry casings before closing up the holes and putting their pies in the oven in the hope that the lids would not cave in. We find pies and torts, which are pies with edible crust, in recipe collections from across Europe. The foodstuffs enclosed in pastry could be manifold, from meat, cheese and vegetables, to fruits and nuts. These pies often reflected local preferences, but some managed to rise to international stardom, as uh, was the case with the Parma pie, a truly luxurious dish which was no doubt the crowning of many medieval banquets. It was an unusually tall pie filled with layers upon layers of meat and fowl. On fast days, these layers would consist of fish and eel, fruits, nuts, herbs and spices. And so this is the midday version of the Parma pie contained in the viandier of event. Turch Pamiens Parmesan pie Take mutton, veal or pork and chop it up sufficiently small. Then boil poultry and quarter it and the other meat must be cooked before being chopped up. Then get fine powder and sprinkle it on the meat very sensibly and fry your meat in bacon grease. Then get large open pastry cells which should have higher sides than usual and should be of the size of small plates and shape them with crenellations which are square sawtooth indentations at the top. They should be of a strong dough in order to hold the meat. If you wish, you can mix pine nut paste and currants among the meat, with granulated sugar on top. Into each pastry put three or four chicken quarters in which to plant the banners of France and of the lords who will be present, and glaze them with moistened saffron to give them a better appearance. For anyone who does not want to go to such expense for poultry, all he has to do is make flat pieces of pork or mutton, either roasted or boiled. When the pies are filled with their meat, the meat on top should be glazed with a little bit an egg, both yolks and whites, so that this meat will hold together solidly enough to set the banners in. And you should have gold leaf or silver leaf or tin leaf to glaze the pies before setting the banners in them. Mm. Much more modest than the parma pie, but nevertheless found in many medieval cookbooks from across Europe, was the mortarolum. Named after the mortar in which the main ingredient, ground meat, was turned into a paste, it appears, for instance, as morterol in Catalan, mortereig in French, mortereig in English, and mortorel in Dutch. A 15th century English manuscript contains an example of this recipe. For the Mortrel de la char, or mortelage of meat, chicken meat and pork are cooked together, then taken out of the pot and the bones removed. The meat is to be chopped small, ground well and returned to the broth. Fine wine bread is added, as well as saffron to give it colour. When it is boiled, the dish is taken off the fire, mixed with egg yolks and sprinkled with spice powder. In medieval Europe, contrary to... The cuisine that came up later, in later centuries, 18th, 19th century and so on, uh, those who could afford to do so would generously season their stews with saffron, with cinnamon, with cloves and with ginger. Also sugar was rare and a ubiquitous um, spice and used in savoury dishes. Old European cuisine, till the end of the Tudor era really in England, was defined by its use of complex and contrasting flavours, which is something that is obviously very prevalent in uh, Indian cuisine, for example, as it's today, but also back then too. Indian cuisine was so exquisite and in bringing elements together from lots of different ingredients with flavours and molecules that they don't overlap. So you have all these different contrasting things happening. And in fact, it seems like European cuisine was part of that trend up until the mid-16th century, as we will see some examples the next one. And this is it. This is part one of the European Medieval Cuisine. Next week we'll see in a lot more detail the Medieval Cuisine of England after the Norman Conquest and we'll definitely talk about Medieval Arab recipes from... uh, Spain from the Moors, and uh, we'll check um, the medieval Italian cuisine as well. Thanks for listening. I've been Thomas Dinas, and this was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. Remember that from $3 a month, you can get the podcasts ad free earlier than published on Acast, and of course, with extra content on Patreon. So if you go to my Patreon page, which is the Delicious Legacy Podcast, you can subscribe there and get a ton of different information. Lots of uh, recipes, musics, articles and of course the podcasts ad-free. Join me next week for another adventure in medieval Europe. Have a lovely Easter.